Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host, Titus, and today in our Europe series, I am joined again by my good friend, Sebastian Eduardo Di Giovanni, for our, I think, fifth conversation on Paolo Sorrentino. Today, we will start a two-episode series on the Sorrentino HBO miniseries, The Young Pope. It came out in 2016. It stars Jude Law as an impossibly handsome and... Uh, comically reactionary, very bold uh, pope, uh, the first American, the first young man, the first to try to somehow save Catholicism and return mankind to God. So uh, you can see this is not the kind of entertainment we usually see on the big screen in a blockbuster production with a large eight-figure budget for an HBO prestige series. Uh, it, it's a very unusual thing that somehow fits with the fact that Sorrentino is a very unusual director. Now, uh, The Young Pope was uh, about two years, two years and a half in production. They started in 2014. That is just after Sorrentino's great success with La Grande Bellezza winning the Oscar. It, uh, he, he has since been nominated again, which is very rare for the hand of God. But obviously, it's, uh, so to speak, against the rules to win a second time. That was his major success, and he followed up with his second American language, American production, The Young Pope, after the movie This Must Be the Place, from 2011, starring Sean Penn. And this time, he picked something uh, more shocking than anything in big uh, Hollywood or Hollywood-style productions, I think, in the 21st century. The Young Pope is, uh, we will never tire of saying this, really unlike uh, what we are used to. And therefore, although it was a succès du scandale, as we say, it has not made as much of an impact as it should have. People loved it when they saw it because it was so stylish and so outrageously funny. And then it uh, was in a certain way dropped because it was also uncomfortable and made people think about what is it that they love about it and what does that say about themselves? And, uh, and, and so that's the sort of thing that we will be trying to drag up. In our conversation, we will, uh, of course, look at the gorgeous uh, scenes and, on the other hand, the really bold and, and not just provocative, but leading statements uh, made in the movie. The major characters, but especially the young Pope himself, Jude Law, keep making remarkable statements that are, are brushed off by the series itself by moving to a next scene, but which linger with the audience and make you think about the human condition, about what it means to seek for love, and why we are so sure that we are human after all, despite all the many troubles, the troubles to which flesh is heir. Well, this much by way of an introduction. It's, a, it's all to, to come to the conclusion that it's, it's very hard to say in what way comedy can be a serious form of art. And yet one watches The Young Pope and it becomes certain that it's a very serious, not just a very funny work of art. And at the same time, uh, it raises this other question, in what way is it fitting to, to, to show in comedy religion. And nevertheless, when one watches Sorrentino, one thinks he has somehow pulled it off. It's just not very clear what he has pulled off. This uh, by way of uh, provocation. Uh, Sebastian, thank you very much for joining me again. We've talked about uh, La Grande Bellezza and the Hand of God. We've talked about the consequences of love as well. We are on a roll with Sorrentino. We talked about Il Divo, the movie about Giulio Androtti and uh, Italian Republican politics. Now we get to a very different subject. We get to religion. But in a way, uh, this shows not just that Sorrentino has many different ideas on his mind, but, that, but how they all cohere together. After all, he made movies about various aspects of uh, uh, Italian life that are very important. And he's perhaps the only director in our times to make movies about politics on the one hand and religion on the other. The things that in a certain way, you know, polite people aren't supposed to talk about, we used to say, but uh, but the sorts of things that art no longer touches on in our times. And yet they are the most important thing, justice and the soul, let's say. 
So I think uh, we we are in a position uh, on our in our fifth conversation to show that this is not just entertainment. This is just not just a very witty writer who, as director, has a penchant for beautiful uh, cinematography. Uh, as usual, Luca Bigazzi shot this uh, series for him, and uh, a penchant for say pop music, and it's the way it reveals the longings of of, of the soul, and a penchant for theatrical staging for very clever blocking and composition and uh, putting actors in a scene in a way that takes you by surprise. It's it's not simply virtuosity in short. It might be something closer to virtue or even a certain claim to poetic wisdom. Maybe it shows what is it that we want out of life. So this, I could say, is a very tall bill. It's a very hard uh, thing to uh, live up to. But at any rate, these are our ambitions. So now on to you, Sebastian. Tell me, how did you discover The Young Pope? You have watched this so many times. How do you think about it? Hi, Titus. And first of all, thank you again for having me. This is becoming a very wonderful opportunity to chat about all things, movies and yeah, this is our fifth episode. So, and we're, you know, the the this opportunity with the young pope, probably the cherry on the cake of Sorrentino's uh, creative genius. I, oh, hold on, how did I discover it? Well, I guess, no, I was already following Sorrentino for a long time. So, you know, all the, my ears were peeled for anything Sorrentino news. And, um, and yeah, at first I thought it was a joke because the rumors started flying in Italy, like, you know, Rome is a very big city, but it's also a very small city, especially in the movie industry. And I was having friends and family, because I'm from Rome, originally saying, well, I don't know, there's this definitely a Sorrentino is shooting something, but no one knew what it was. And I think someone pointed out in some magazine that they could see Jude Law, but dressed in a very popish way, but no one knew what was happening. So I said, oh, my God, could it be? Sorrentino is doing, um, we thought, it, I thought, or we thought at the beginning, it was a movie, obviously. And then finally they, they, they had to confess. So someone confessed in the, in the team, Paolo Sorrentino's team. Yes, it's a series and it's going to be about a very young American Pope. Now, obviously for a split second, no matter how much my respect for Sorrentino's work is and for Jude Law as an actor, I thought, oh no please don't make a series on the papacy with an American. We already have enough problems with, you know, an Argentinian Pope. I, I'm not sure we need some, but I was completely wrong about Jude Law, obviously, in Sorrentino. And, uh, and uh, yeah, when it finally came out, I think I was already in Paris, actually. And it was so weird. So seeing these big posters in French about a Sorrentino movie, about, you know, uh, Catholicism and the Pope. But yeah, that's when I first became aware of it and I watched it right away. I think I even subscribed to whatever platform it was. Or I detest platforms, streaming platforms. But I think I specifically just joined probably just the three weeks that it was for free. You know, if you subscribe, you've got one week for free or something. So I just watched it in one long night and one morning. And then I watched it another time right away. And then I canceled that subscription, but it was totally worth it. And I loved it. it it's just so much to take in because it's it's a series. It's his first and only series so far. And, you know, the fear was like so many authors get tempted, rightfully so, by the long format that a series allows. The problem is, as you more better than me, is the rhythms are completely different. So many, many great, great artists and directors actually did abysmal series. I mean, just Woody Allen series for Amazon comes to mind. There are some good ideas here and there, but 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 what Woody Allen couldn't achieve was to get that same rhythm that a movie has. So I don't know about what you think about that series, but, but yeah, it just kind of got lost and goes nowhere. Well, thank God this didn't happen in Sorrentino's first and only series. It's it's thrilling, it's deep, it's witty. It's absolutely Fellinesque in a way. It's like absurd. Uh, it's all the best of Sorrentino, just uh, in a long format. So I don't, I don't know. Uh, I think it's like 10 episodes, 45 minutes each or something like that. As usual, the plot is uh, hardly discernible. You wonder until 
way past the end. Is there a plot? Like, or is it the usual Sorrentino, let's go, let's see where this takes us kind of non-existent plot? But it does have a plot, actually. But yeah, I don't want to give too much away with the actual plot. If I, I know, did it come out in America? Of course it did. But yeah, as you as you explain, this is about a very young Pope, 49, I think he is in the series, and he's the first American. So the whole series focuses around, I think, two big themes. One is obviously faith, what faith is, and the second one being an orphan. Oh yeah, this Pope is an orphan, just like Sorrentino is an orphan. So he had, for, for the first time, because this came out before, obviously, um, what's the English title for the last movie? Um Hand of God. La, La Mano di Dio, the hand of God. That was the first time he actually addressed something really personal and deep, like like one of being an orphan. And it touches for the first time, it shares his ideas, basically the author shares his ideas about the Catholic faith, or actually faith in general. Now, just like Fellini, which is I found is so interesting, two authors that never really discussed their faith. I mean, later, maybe Fellini was more open about what he believed in, but but for the entirety of his career, it wasn't clear whether he was a believer or not, you know, and, and you know, his movies were widely, you know, uh, ostracized by the church. Same thing to Sorrentino, although he wasn't ostracized by anyone, we, we never knew before that movie if he had any religious ideas at all. Well, it turns out they're very clear. They're not necessarily his views, but for some mysterious reason that I think... I don't know, can only be explained by divine inspiration. Sometimes non-members of the church or non-faithful people, but very deep thinkers grasp better than we do, maybe from an outside perspective, what what what, what the church is about or faith is about. So back to the point, this is an orphan pope. He's 49. He's an American. And you, he struggles, obviously. In, first of all, he's a very conservative pope, which is unexpected because everyone in the conclave, or what you're led to believe actually is that he was the product of machinations by an incredibly funny, what's his name in, in, in the series, uh, Cardinal... Um, Voyello. Voyello, he's from Naples. So he's this, uh, I don't want to say devious, because in the end he's actually a good guy, but he's portrayed as this devious deus ex machina that, that manages to get the conclave together and elect this young pope so that he could be mold in his hands. And he drastically underestimated this young man because then it turns out um, Cardinal, uh, not Cardinal, sorry, Lenny Bellado, which is the, the name of Pope Pius XIII, is actually not micromanageable at all. And he has his own agenda and it's a very conservative agenda. So the whole series is about this unexpectedly ultra conservative Pope that wants to bring the faithful back to the church. Now, the, the way Sorrentino does it is actually counterintuitive no, it's not, it's not counterintuitive. It's not what you would expect, because especially this papacy, for example, I mean, I don't want to make it political, but Bergoglio in his own, you know, Franciscus, in his own right, had, had an idea, which, you know, is commendable. Let's try to get closer to the people, to the faithful. Let's modernize the church and you'll see the flock will come back. And, you know, it's it's a theory. It didn't work out and out. But, you know, it had respect in some way. Now, what Sonentillo does is the opposite. This Pope will never be seen by the public. His Angelus was done in the dark in the evening with no TV. I mean, there was TV, but no one could see but a shade. He doesn't want merchandise. He doesn't want to appear. He doesn't want to talk. And there's this great talk at the very beginning. Do you remember when he talks to the marketing lady? Now, obviously, she has a problem, like, the first thing, I don't know how many people know this, but obviously the first thing a Pope has to do is approve of his image so they can start doing all this merchandise that makes up a consistent part of the budget of the Vatican. And this marketing lady, she's played by a wonderful Cécile de France and absolutely gorgeous, very well played. And uh, and, and she brags in the very first minutes that she's from Harvard, you know. And there's this brilliant line. And one wonders how Sorrentino knows this. Because he's not a bit, you know, francophile, I guess. But anyway, he does know apparently that, um, in the words of the Pope, that he brides obviously says, "Don't sound so cocky. Harvard might mean something around here, but in America it means only one thing: decline." Now, no offense to any Harvard listeners, but, but this is Sorrentino talking. But I found it brilliant. 
And he saw this first meeting with this marketing lady, which he he detests the idea of marketing. But he points out something that is absolutely counter what we're being told lately. So his whole strategy for this papacy is he will not appear. There was going to be no images, no speeches, no nothing, because it's the faith. God has to be, you know, you have to fight for God's love and it has to be mysterious. And he makes some great examples that, I mean, the, the whole speech is fascinating. He says, what are, who's the most, not famous author, who's the most relevant author of the 20th century? Roth. Uh, the best um, electronic band, Daft Punk, uh, Italian singer, Mina. So he keeps quoting people that did one thing once they became famous, they disappeared. No one knows their faces, no one has seen them again. And he's exactly right. The mysterium tremendum et fascinans of faith in general, but of, of the church should be inaccessibility. For example, I think Latin was a big mistake, you know, get rid of the Latin mass. I'm not saying it should only be in Latin, but I thought it was incredibly short-sighted to literally ban it. Uh, because whether you understand Latin or not, it has something in the sound and in the in the eeriness of it. It's mysterious. And the whole smoke from the um, uh, from the candles and, you know, it gives that, that feeling that, that the human heart wants. And what the human heart wants, apart from believing, is Belief also must be mysterious and inaccessible. If you make what is supposed to be hidden and hard to get accessible to everyone, you lose the core, quote unquote, business of your trade. And this Pope is exactly, understands this perfectly. Now, for the whole series, we're confused because he's a very confusing Pope. He does things that are incredibly, let's say, harsh and not evil, but I would say harsh, but then in private, when he's alone and he, and he talks to God, his faith is unshakable and he's capable of acts of incredible goodness. But it's, it's his nature is a contradictory. You know, he has to be, he's both an orphan, but father to billions now. And as he, there's another brilliant line, don't you know all orphans, um, oh, what's the line again? All orphans are forced to be adults sooner. I mean, it, 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 something has to do that orphans are both, children they stay children but also they they need to grow up much faster so you you you, you can imagine if you have to take care of one billion faithful what does that what this does to a man that believes that knows that for whatever mysterious reason uh, god decided that he would be an orphan so he's struggling constantly about his absolute devotion and love for god but also the doubts he has in his own heart it raises a question you know first of all what is the Catholic Church now and what is faith? Is it silence or is it, you know, I don't want to say glamour, but, you know, being very loud. And, uh, you know, there was the synod of synodality recently in Rome and it was broadcast far and wide. And I think, I mean, obviously, you know, my ideas and we've shared them many times. So the reason I like this series is for whatever reason, a man that is for his, by his own admission, very progressive and basically very on the left. He managed to give this fantastic picture of what the church actually maybe should be. So seeing from the outside, someone like him understood that that silencium est aureum, as the Latin say, you know, silence is golden and it should be hard work to find God and, 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 and faith. And uh, perhaps over the past years, some themes that should remain private or just a matter between us and, and a higher self and being have been spectacularized but also i don't want to sound like an you know an old fart but really do you need twitter pope okay i forget twitter that that has to do with news maybe x whatever it's called now but instagram really that's was that really necessary i would like to see a pope that doesn't almost talk at all and but when he does talk is very profound you know some of the accusations of this pope is he sometimes the banality of his thoughts according to some uh, are shocking and you know sometimes maybe it is true on the other hand the accusations for the previous pope was that he was being too theological so you know who am i to say what a pope a pope shouldn't do or say but the beauty of sorrentino's approach is what if the Pope doesn't talk at all and just say a very few short sentences and let the faithful decide and work about their relationship with God? But yeah, in a nutshell, I think this whole series is about 
the situation of not having any parents and yet being parents to billions of people. And it's played beautifully by Jude Law, who's obviously shockingly handsome as well. So, you know, you have this Pope that literally looks like Jesus Christ and he knows it. And here's the beauty. He's both, because he's an orphan, he's an old man in a young body. He's 49, but also he knows perfectly well how the modern world behaves. And uh, there's another great duel between him and an Italian prime minister. He's got an audience with this prime minister. He won't be known to American audiences or English audiences, but we know, we Italians, we know exactly who Sorrentino based that prime minister upon. He was a very, the youngest prime minister we ever had a few years ago called Matteo Renzi. And he was incredibly uh, between arrogant and cocky. Like he thought that just because he, he was young, he could do whatever he wanted and absolutely insufferable guy. And uh, and the actor that plays him is brilliant. Uh, Stefano Corsi, great Italian actor. But the interesting part about this bit is when these two young, one very young head of state and one, well, actually two very young heads of state. The politician obviously thinks he's smarter. And uh, there's this great speech about how now that this conservative pope has lost so much consensus, he's this politician is finally free to free the Italy from the clutches of the church. And Pius XIII just destroys his argument in a speech that I encourage everyone to watch on YouTube. There's just that clip, just watch it. And it's just genius. And he says, listen, you don't understand. I don't have to be liked on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook. I only have to please God. And trust me, if God wants me to, I can show you that God exists and I will wipe out all your 40% of the votes and that smile off your face. And eventually he does. It's just brilliantly written, brilliantly shot. Unfortunately, they couldn't shoot in the Vatican, obviously, because no one can. It's one of their laws. So they've redone the whole of the, not not of the Vatican, but they've redone some entire halls, including the Sistine Chapel, millimeter by millimeter. It's just absolutely spectacular. I think it's probably one of the best series I've seen, maybe ever, because it's both Sorrentino goodness and very deep spirituality and and and, and thought-provoking stuff. But also it's a it's a joy just to watch, even if you're non- uh, not if you're not a non-believer, but just if you're just suddenly interested in, in watching something good, you, they will they will appreciate it because it's just uh, it's just great. Yeah, I think that's maybe the the place where we could uh, start uh, dealing with what kind of series this is. It's clearly made for a, a, a wide audience for anybody who watches any of the clips or its famous title sequence and is drawn in intrigued what is this you're probably going to like the whole ride not just the trailer you're probably going to uh, love most of the surprises that come uh, throughout the story but also the deepening portrait of this of this pope so it's um, let me first give some evidence for how smart the whole thing is so that mm-hmm. it doesn't sound ridiculous if i say some bold things later First, Mm -hmm. there is this minute-long title sequence that opens every episode, uh, Jude Law walking in a very cocky way, uh, as you said, in in the full uh, regalia of Pope Pius XIII, past nine paintings. Uh, Those nine paintings tell the story of the church. Some of them are by masters, some of them not by masters, but the, the first is the adoration of the shepherds, then there is... Uh, the you know Christ giving the keys to Saint Peter, then then there is the revelation on the road to Damascus. Saul of Tarsus becomes the Apostle Paul, and fourth one is an icon from the from a, a Orthodox mo- monastery at Meteora, uh, the Council of Nicaea, the first ecumenical council, the creed, the the, the institutionalization of Christianity in the Roman Empire. And so on from there, you see paintings of, you know, St. Francis and uh, St. Thomas Villanova, uh, mm-hmm. people who save the poor. You see Peter the Hermit preaching the First Crusade. So uh, now we're in the Middle Ages. And then at the end of the series, you see a painting by Passignano of Michelangelo presenting the model of St. Peter's Basilica to the Pope. And then uh, the, the, it ends with this shocking painting by Dubois of the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre in yeah. Paris. 
and uh, in short, the counter-reformation, the wars of religion, and the shocks that the church faced in modernity. And uh, that's the history of the church in, in, in relation to which this uh, fictional pope has to be understood. But the fictional pope himself, uh, you know, his, he, he, he takes the name Pius XIII, and all of a sudden everybody realizes this must be a reference to the popes, Pius IX, the 10th, 11th, and the 12th, who faced modernity since the French Revolution, who faced the loss of the papal state, the temporal authority, and all of the catastrophes of the 20th century since they were popes into the 1950s, right? So that's the continuity he wants to establish. And most obviously, this is a, a, an attempt to go back before the Second Vatican Council of the 60s and the aggiornamento, the updating of the church. That's what it's all about. And everybody in the conclave gets it once he chooses his name. As you say, they thought he was such a beautiful but meek, a cautious, obedient pope. And it turns out that uh, they have reared a lion among them, so to speak. And he is not a cub anymore, but he is a full adult now uh, looking to take over the church in order to restore its grandeur, its pomp, its mystery, as you said, its uh, strength and its immediate demand that the soul should confront the need for God. I would say it's an entire series about taking seriously Pascal's wager. The, so you need a, a character who can embody that, who will not just command it as Pope, but will embody it himself as man. And so the whole series, as you say, is built on this contradiction of the incredible power of the office, but on the other hand, the contradictory qualities of the man behind the office, uh, who is, after all, the, the core of this series. And he is built to some extent as a uh, replacement for and an alternative to Pope John Paul II, you know, the Saint John Paul II. So that's a, a further uh, way in which the series is both counterintuitive and provocative. At the end of the title sequence, a comet that has been running through these pictures, uh, uh, perhaps like the Star of Bethlehem, in fact, uh, as a comet lands on a statue of uh, John Paul II and knocks it down. And uh, the young Pope uh, himself says that, unlike his predecessor, he does not want to be popular. He does not want to be liked. Uh, what he wants is for people to confront the demand of faith, uh, not to have good feelings about things, but to concern themselves, first of all, with the demands of God for the salvation of the soul. So uh, a much harsher attitude, but uh, you could say, therefore, that he is a kind of fictionalization of the old, uh, follower of uh, John Paul II, Benedict XVI, who, whose name also, in, in, in following Benedict XV, points to those pious popes and to the pre-Vatican papacy more broadly. That's, uh, that's when uh, Benedict XV, after all, had been pope. So I think that's perhaps somewhat subtle. You need to know a bit of art history. You need to know some modern history that is not widely known now, I guess, I guess, except among the more learned Catholics uh, about the papal succession uh, and, and, and the various transformations through councils. But uh, it, it, it's not that the series is addressed only to such people, not at all. It's just that it is addressed to all these categories of intelligent viewers. The more you know about what you're seeing, uh, the more you get out of the series, or perhaps these are things that you understand better on a second or a third viewing, and then there is even more delight in coming back to something that becomes familiar without losing its charms. There is a kind of poetic mystery to the series as well, is what I'm trying to suggest. And uh, and it's there in every aspect of the series. It's uh, but, but you also get a guide, you could say, from the most obvious level, right? That, as when this Cardinal Lenny Ballardo becomes the Pope Pius XIII, he sets about, uh, without letting anybody know, restoring the pomp and pageantry of the papacy, getting the papal tiara back from the uh, National Cathedral in Washington, D.C., you know, reinstall, returning to the papal throne and the papal uh, lectern, and uh, the, getting Using back to the uh, velvet slippers. Which is that chair. Exactly. exactly. After all, that's what the literally ex cathedra means. That's where the phrase originally comes from. It's not uh, what we mean by cathedra in the modern Latin languages. It means speaking from the chair, 
that is the speech of authority of the bishop or the uh, ultimately, of course, the bishop of Rome in the Catholic Church. And uh, with uh, Pope Pius XIII, we get to see that again, literally. And uh, indeed, the whole first half of the series, the first five episodes, which are uh, struck uh, structured together, and apart from the other half we'll discuss later by a separation of a good half year or so. That is, we see the inception and then the consequences of the papacy after a duration of time. Now, uh, this whole first half is, is about uh, these couple of speeches. Uh, you already mentioned the Angelus, uh, the Pope uh, comes out on the balcony of St. Peter and addresses the uh, worshipping crowd the first time. But then uh, it, it ends with the speech to the cardinals, which lays out the authoritative direction of the church to the princes of the church. Uh, the princes are shocked and uh, really uh, subdued. Part of the authority restored is having the, the cardinals kneel and kiss the Pope's slipper. It's astonishing. You'd never thought, you'd never think you'd see such a thing in uh, entertainment. Wow. Uh, so, so that these are all indications about how serious, on the one hand, the claims of authority are, and on the other hand, how important beauty and paying attention to the details of artistic construction in the series itself, not just in the architecture and the paintings we see, or the sculptures, or the uh, you know all of the beautiful shots of the Vatican parks and uh, Saint Peter's and. Uh, so on. All of that stuff is supposed to point out to you that on the one hand it has an enormous effect on us directly, and on the other hand it involves uh, indirectly a lot of construction, a lot of thinking through, a lot of planning and taking care of, a mastery of the craft. Uh, and indeed you could say it's precisely nowadays that the pay uh, the papacy does not control territory anymore. There are not popes like Julius II leading armies into battle as 500 years ago. The uh, you know the the warrior pope, um, but instead you get to see, as you so well put it, the the fact that the pope is not just in competition with the modern world for souls or consciences, but is in competition with modern commercial regimes for marketing for disposable income spent, uh, in this case, by the faithful on buying the image and likeness of the Pope himself, one at a time. Uh, it is, uh, it is in a way, uh, an incredibly humbling or even humiliating uh, situation to put a, a church or a faith in and shows its much reduced status in modern times. But on the other hand, as Sorrentino suggests and uh, as, as uh, Pius XIII shows, this might give a Pope enormous power in as much as free from um, temporal affairs, he is not an object of fear or envy or hatred or of partisan or national conflict. Mm -hmm. He is instead in a way free to uh, address people all over the world at once, but in private and in a way in secret. He, uh, the, you know, that is the modern commercial liberal regimes of enlightenment politics have an enormous weaknesses, an enormous weakness they didn't count on. Uh, in, in allowing freedom of speech, they do not have control. Uh, uh, you know, they cannot separate a, a man's conscience from heaven, so to speak. There is no will of separation there. And uh, this is what uh, you could say Sorrentino contributes. Uh, on the one hand, as you said, the strategy of Pope Pius XIII is withdrawal. It is to remove uh, the most despicable thing you can see everywhere you go in Europe now. The church is turned into not even museums, but tourist attractions. Uh, you know, Up until recently, when they didn't charge uh, a fee to get into, say, the Pantheon, uh, you know, you, you, you would have to hear every couple of minutes in multiple languages, a robotic voice saying, silencio, silence, please, because people don't have any respect for it. There's that great line, sorry to interrupt, but it just brought me to mind. Great line. I still know it by heart. Um, I He's talking to a cardinal in this beautiful, empty St. Peter's church. And he said, I will never shed my aversions for tourists. And the cardinal asked, why? Because they're just passing through. Now, how deep is that? And, um, yeah, no, sorry, continue, but that was just... No, a... exactly right, right. That is the problem. These people are curious, but there's no love in their hearts and there is no awe in them. And in that sense, uh, you can see why uh, Pope Pius XIII looks at them and says, are they even human? That is, do they have souls? How are they not souls charged? How do they not understand what they are part of, what they are in the midst of? 
in such a moment, in such a place. Uh, in, in short, how can they have become ignorant to the sacred? Yeah. That on the basis of which, and then somehow in opposition to which, all of our way of life, all of our beliefs in justice are actually based. There must be something at the ground of all things that is stronger than all of the perishable, uh, partisan, conflictual ideas and pursuits of our private and political lives. And yet it has become almost invisible. And so indeed, uh, in, in withdrawing uh, on the one hand from the public as Pope and refusing access to the faithful unless they are faithful, uh, you could say that Pope Pius XIII only makes clear and obvious to everyone what has become uh, the, the truth about uh, the modern way of life. It's no longer Enlightenment society, really. There are next to no rationalists left. Uh, indeed, all sorts of weird superstitions and fantasies abound, positively leap uh, from, from, from uh, heart to heart, so to speak, fevered imaginations, uh, uh, thriving on madness. But on the other hand, true religion does not matter to people or not to, uh, not publicly, certainly, and not perhaps to majority, so to speak. It's not authoritative, is what I'm trying to get at. And so you could say that Sorrentino uh, lives up to the criticism that the faithful make of a somewhat faithless world. And he uh, makes it obvious that uh, they do not have God in their hearts. And uh, the, the series forces people to confront that without breaching its somewhat comedic limits, by, by uh, suggesting again and again through these aperçus, through these uh, remarkable statements, like the one you quoted, uh, you know, what, what happens with these tourists? How is it possible for them to just be passing through? Uh, in another way, to just be passing through is how people can go through life. Mm. And again, you ask yourself, is that a human life when you're just passing through? Doesn't seem right somehow. Uh, no. But it's not something we can uh, bring up, right? It would be deeply insulting or, or you know, a breach of each man's private freedom to mind his own business, to say so. And yet in, in a work of art, it is possible to say so, unlike, say, in public speeches. And so Sorrentino manages to get all this criticism of a, a shallow post-Enlightenment or post-modern society through uh, not just the mouth, and but also the actions of, of this young pope. And to and, and uh, simply by doing this, he he suggests you could say the crisis we're facing, like the cardinals in this uh, young pope series. People today expect, sort of as with Pope Francis, that the papacy itself must become progressive. You wonder why should there exist any Catholicism or any papacy if what they are is progressive, since we already have progressives and they aren't uh, you know particularly close to or minted in any church whatsoever. But what if you don't have to be progressive? What if you could go the other way? What would it mean for progressives to face the fact that uh, the faith of enlightenment is broken, and yet maybe the faith of the Catholics might hold, however terrible the times are from a spiritual point of view? Uh, what if there's not that much progress? What if it's certainly not uh, inevitable? And uh, what if something from the past uh, returns something uh, that, that, that is closer to the origins of civilization and which might have a purchase on us because everywhere in our way of life, it's there if you stop to notice it as, uh, as Sorrentino stops to notice it in this series. Uh, you know, it's, it's the only thing he has done that concerns seriously and directly religion, but, uh, but it is of a piece with other uh, aspects of his work and interest in the past a worry that people today are too superficial to know that they are walking, say, in the ruins of civilization. Indeed, because they are so superficial, these are the ruins of civilization. But perhaps if they weren't so superficial, they would not be ruins anymore, but they would be living in civilization instead. There's, and, and you see this all the time in the series because he brings to life this possibility of faith. He, he, he shows through the machinations of the plot all our resistance to that way of life, all our, I would say, dependence on our enlightenment way of life, but also all our prejudices against, you know, seriousness about faith, at least in public. And in that sense, manages to achieve a remarkably astute and yet delicate control of our emotions. Uh, much of the stories about the conflict between the Pope and the Cardinal Secretary of State, Voyello, whom you have already mentioned, 
the Pope is a kind of revolutionary, partly because he's a young man, partly for other reasons, partly because maybe that's what God wants, you know? It's always somehow brought up in the story. What if this is what God wants? Yeah. What do you do now? That is, once you don't ha have a, a simple assumption of empty progress, uh, you have to start thinking about uh, God's providence instead of progress as defining uh, aspect of our civilization. And, uh, and and this is what the somewhat progressive and very interesting, very Italian Cardinal Voyello represents in the story. Uh -huh. He his his uh, you know if you want to be literary, although this is perhaps a little crass, Voyello is Sancho Panza to Pope Pius's uh -huh. uh, Don Quixote. Uh, he has no uh, honorable idealism himself, but it does not mean that he is against it. Indeed, he turns gradually in the first uh, half of the series to be a fairly faithful and a rather competent servant of this new pope, because he comes to think that maybe this is what the papacy is about. Maybe it is supposed to stand against, so to speak, the decadence of the times and uh, call for a spiritual rejuvenation. <laughs> what if that's the job of being pope? Yeah. Uh, not, uh, not, you know, managing decline, but uh, in a way trying to fight against it. <laughs> Oh, absolutely. So tell us I mean, a bit, uh, let me pass it back to you. Maybe tell us a bit about Voyello, about the Cardinal Secretary of State and the many secrets and troubles in the Vatican that he is so afraid of and yet trying to master. Well, the character of Voyello, first of all, shows a deep knowledge by Sorrentino of how the church works. Now, I'm not sure how many people are familiar with this, well, certainly in your podcast, many, but um, the, the Vatican is what's technically called a theocracy. So there's one, it's the last absolute monarchy of Europe. Um, the Pope is plenipotentiary. He can do whatever he wants and is, I mean, at least officially, but let's not get into the politics of that. But what happened over the past few decades, namely from when the Pope became a sort of a more, let's say, let's say part of the, a popular imagination uh, persona, I would say starting from John Paul II. There were some hints of this from John, John Paul I, but he lasted only 30 days. So the Secretary of State, whilst, whilst the Pope was, you know, traveling the world, especially John Paul II, they started acquiring most of the actual power. Because, you know, it's a small enclave, but it's it still is a state. Oh, speaking of gorgeous lines, there's one gorgeous line at the beginning where, where the Pope goes, Rome a suburb of Vatican City. <laughs> anyway, so Voyello is the sec what's called the Secretary of State, so the second most powerful person in the Vatican, but we all know it's him who actually, usually at least in, 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 in the real world, um, holds all the reins. Now, this Pope drastically undermines Voyello's plans because the, the most of the series revolves around also mystery. No one knows how this Pope got elected. Now, Voyello has every interest, and everyone actually believes it, to be to be considered the kingmaker, pulling the strings. So he, he keeps telling everyone, "It was my cunning genius. I wanted this young pope that I so that I could uh, so that I could um, maneuver him." Well, it turns out that that, that he, it it wasn't actually him. It was actually the Holy Spirit who decided. No one knows how this happened. Not even the Pope. I mean, he believes this Holy Spirit came down and illumined the cardinals, which it did for once, but everyone else believes it was Voyello. So Voyello is supposed to be this halfway between Sir Francis Walsingham and, let's say, the Cecils, to use an uh, Elizabethan characters. Technically, he has all the power. He's depicted as incredibly uh, cunning and devious. It will later turn out, actually, that he's a very good guy like he's secret but he's kind in secret like pope, the pope is kind in secret he helps a disabled boy and watches over him the whole night so this man who's so powerful and hold all the strings with the previous pope could only confess himself to this disabled boy he had no friends because of his role but then with this new pope and his role being drastically diminished he starts opening up and eventually he whilst he tried to literally frame the Pope with some um, with some uh, well typical Italian fashion with some 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 pictures that should not exist uh he tries to you know he bribes a, a girl to go with the Pope and try to catch him in any 
possible way that could be misinterpreted. And there's something Pope Pius XIII does, and he's listening in. Oh, I think the line was, if my memory serves me right, I chose to love God because it's just so hard to love men. And I think it's in that moment that the Pope actually realizes, oh my God, this guy is actually a saint. He actually means well. He has the true faith. And that's when Voyello turns. So this devious character all of a sudden starts helping him. While Sister Mary, which was the sister that raised Lenny Bellardo, which will become the Pope, at first totally trusts him as a Pope. She knows he's a saint. But in the second half of the series, she starts distrusting not him as a Pope, but his abilities to actually rule the church. Because even she starts understanding, okay, this is not working out. So you see this Cardinal Voyello having to deal with Sister Mary and both having to deal with a very unpredictable Pope. And not to spoil anything, but in the in the end, one will see that um, the Pope was right. Not saying a word for what I'm guessing is about yeah, six months a year creates creates this spasmodic weight and 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 wanting to see him, to hear him, that the last scene in Venice is this just ocean of people finally listening to the first address of the Pope in daylight where they could see his face. And I won't go any further because I don't want to ruin it. But uh, Sorrentino clearly tells us he's almost trying to help the church, I think. Very much like, like Fellini tried to do. And it, this is not the first time, um, actually, Sorrentino does it. Because here and there, you could see in the great beauty with that figure of the cardinal and that conversation at dinner with Jeb Gambardella that he actually cares about the destiny of the church. Perhaps what it doesn't trust is the, some men in the church. And uh, Sorrentino's recipe is absolutely correct, especially especially in light of what happened in all, all these years, because this series is years old now. Mystery is the key. If your trademark is 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 you know is your core business, I hate to use these words from the business world, but if your call to action, if your if you if your core business is is faith, meaning mystery and 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 matters that have to do with the deepest of mysteries, which is the human soul, then you have to keep it mysterious, you know, and, and that's what Sorrentino got. And that's one of the things I don't understand about this Pope. I might not agree with him on most things, but there's some acts of him that literally show where he does not understand that, that, that you're selling the wrong cure to, to, to get the faithful back into the churches, which is make yourself less seen make it more mysterious, actually try to, you know, okay, I shouldn't say this, but let's keep it anonymous. Ever since the Latin Mass is banned in Italy, just let alone think about this, he banned the Latin Church, the, 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 the Latin Mass, sorry. I'm not saying the rites, it's not a Tridentine rite, just simply the language. You're not even allowed to use the language anymore. So what started to happen, and they're thriving, there's secret Masses in Latin all over Italy. So you can see how it's actually, as always, like when it was forbidden to see each other during the lockdowns. I was in Paris back then. I've never seen so many secret parties. I never went to one because I'm not particularly fond of parties, especially if, if there's no way of escaping them. But also, I didn't want to break the laws. But it was just one secret party with password and phrases because we want what we cannot have or understand. And I bet you, I just bet you, if the Pope would actually see the series and try to act a little bit like that Pope, the faithful would start coming back in droves because we deeply want what we can't understand. You know, I think it's a deep-seated longing of the human heart. I went to masses uh, in the Greek Orthodox world or in Russian. I didn't understand a single word, but the beauty, the pageantry, the right, it just appeals to a part of our soul that 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 is thirsty for what it cannot understand. And that's why it's important we actually don't understand it, because once the mind sh shuts up, because it doesn't understand anything, the heart comes in place, or the soul. But I don't want to get too philosophical about this. But I think, like Fellini did uh, in the dialogue with the other cardinal, you know, when he quotes origene, origin in English, who told you that we're here to be happy? I mean, it, very few lines and the whole dialogue is, is about a few minutes long, but there's so much depth in what Fellini puts in the mouth of that cardinal. 
the same thing Sorrentino tries to do. Yeah, I think it's just brilliant. And I I hope. Now, unfortunately, it's, you know, a few hours a few hours ago the news came out. The Pope isn't feeling really well, which is usually um an euphemism when things are starting to go downwards. And obviously we pray for him and we wish him well. But you know, it's been talk in Rome for many months now, if not ever since Benedict, uh, Pope Emeritus died, this Pope is tired and he's ill and there might be a conclave. And you know, we're all we, we, we're all anxious to know what the next Pope's um not ideas will be, but 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 his approach. Will he be more more like Benedict? More like Franciscus's approach, and uh, because it's going to be one of the most important papacies of all time, given all the turmoils in the world, it's going to be a fascinating thing to observe. And I hope, I know as a fact, having worked with the Vatican and being from Rome and knowing that environment quite well, I know as a fact, most of the Curia watched this series back in the day, uh, and even some phrases became. Um, a popular inside jokes inside the Vatican. So, for example, there's a phrase now apparently in 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 the Vatican saying, "Oh, the the Pope just spun the world." It is now complicated to explain, but one of the typical things this Pius the Thirteenth does in the series, whenever he wants to send someone away, he just asks them into the room, and there's this big wonderful globe, and he tells them, "Spin the globe and just point your finger r- randomly. That's where you're gonna go." You know, when he moves cardinals around and have disobeyed. Well, apparently now in Rome, it's becoming a common phrase. Oh, the to spawn, the Pope spun the globe when he wants to get rid of someone. So it it, it had an effect on our culture. Uh, Sorrentino always does. No matter whether you like him or not, you always talk about him. But this faith thing and this longing for the human heart and talking so openly about, because obviously Lenny Bellato's words are about being an orphan are Sorrentino's words. We we now know this as a fact, thanks to the latest movie, The Hand of God. But back in the day, very few people knew that he was an orphan at all. Uh, so in, in hindsight, it's even more fascinating to watch. But uh, yeah, I hope, I don't know, I wasn't there, but how was it received in the States? Because I bet you in the States, possibly they could understand this even more than we did, because you've got such a strong community of actual Catholic and Christians that would love more than us probably to see a pope like this and he's american so what was the reception over there well let's see so in this aired in the autumn of 2016 in italy but it only showed up in america in january 2017 so the year right after a few months later and uh, i uh, traveled a couple of times to america that spring and that summer and a bunch of catholics were talking or still talking about it in various places and, uh, you know, it was a combination of uh, re- reassurance. A lot of people were really excited to see a, a Pope hero. And, of course, a lot of other people were excited, or sometimes the same people, young people, were excited about seeing something so provocative, you know, provocative both to the secular world, but provocative to uh, piety as well. Uh, you know, it's it's a comedy that can get quite broad or shocking at times. And, therefore, uh, it's especially suited, I think, to the taste of the young, and in that sense, it might have been aimed more than most of his movies to attract the young and to shape how they think to some extent about, uh, as you're saying, the longings of their hearts. You know, that also has to be uh, kept in mind, including, as you said, you know, the, the man's called the young pope, and he's a young man by pope standards, but he's 49 and turns 50 in the movie. So he's not young in that sense, but he's young in the sense that he appeals to the young. He is young in the sense that he speaks to a generation that's not likely to be stayed, not likely to be conformist or not likely to be more or less what their parents expect of them. As we have seen in many good ways and more bad ways, the younger generation is out of control of the older generation. And I think it's that taste to which uh, Sorrentino is trying to speak. And so far as I was able to see at the time when uh, when the show came out, it was quite a success. Uh, one wonders, of course, you know, in a way you have to wait on these things. We'll know in 10 years whether it has a legacy as it deserves or whether it sinks. A lot of that, as you said, also depends on developments in the you know, the next conclave or whatever other important things Catholicism will go through. But it does seem to have had a power over people's imaginations that 
no other, let's say, religious entertainment has had or was expected to have in the 21st century. Just by its existence, uh, you know, we're leaving aside its artistry. This was not supposed to happen. It's, uh, in that sense, itself an attack on progress. And not because, you know, I think that somehow Sorrentino is anti-progressive. I think uh, he's trying to remind people that you should take the human being a lot more seriously. You should think about the soul a lot more seriously. And you should try to understand why people's imaginations are moved in the way that they are. He was just uh, the one to be able to show power that the past has over our imaginations because of our concern with our origins on the one hand and on the other hand our fear that we are going down a path we're not going to like uh, as it unfolds before us and uh, and in that sense of course you know the, this 50 uh, year old pope is literally a child of the 60s he's a child of hippies who abandoned him so that they could be hippies it's in, in that sense, the whole series is without exception an attack on the hippie world or the hedonist world, the world of people who are too shallow to be exactly or precisely human. That is, people who are not aware of the of, of our own mortality, of their own mortality, which is, you could say, the condition of our seriousness and the only thing that makes our efforts uh, so noble as they sometimes are. Uh, hence the idea of having a pope try to shoulder the burden of the papacy to to try to uh, save the church as well as the faithful uh, indeed to live up to the demands of faith and uh, the whole people have in uh, Christ so that uh, that is why i said that there's something uh, you know there's a deep contradiction between the office and the man but also in the heart of the man as you suggested there is a deep contradiction between his remarkably calculating intelligence and capacities as a spy, and on the other hand, his uh, unselfish, uh, sacrificial love for people, and which, as you say, tends to happen in private, in uh, away from the public view, but of course, which is made available to us publicly, so to speak, by Sorrentino, that uh, you could say is uh, maybe a rejoinder to this sort of effort, as we have seen with the Papacy of Francis. Uh, maybe the right way to publicize the papacy is not by Instagram. Maybe the right way is something more through poetry, storytelling, the arts, something that preserves the majesty of the office, but at the same time allows people a look in, which is in a way okay because it's fictional. And in that sense, I think Sorrentino did much better by way of publicizing the Catholic Church than most people who attempt to professionally. I mean, there's this one line... Let me try to quote it verbatim. We all want to see that which is hidden. We all want to stare the forbidden in the face. And um, the other line, he says at one point, absence is presence. These are the fundamentals of mystery. In saying this, Sorrentino understood something that was very well known for thousands of years, our entire human existence. Again, the fact that th there needs to be a veil between us and the divine. This is something, for example, I'm amazed you know, people, no, they probably do understand it. They just don't know why. Uh, look at the success series like The Crown are having. Look at the success Downton Abbey had. Now, what is it? And and and, and uh, definitely in Italy, but all over the world, this particular series, what is it? What do these three things have in common? They have values of the past or what we perceive to be value of the past. But values of the past are immortal. That's why they were in the past. What people don't understand is that eternity is, per definition, the ultimate tool for modernity. What is eternal is always uh, is is always a good recipe for troubled times. That's why we always look back when things go bad. We usually go back to save ourselves. That's why beauty is always beauty. While if to if to if you have to explain me why a work of art is beautiful, it's not beautiful. This lack of details things have all these minimalism. It has to do with what all these series have in common, which is a taste for what is beautiful and true. And that stems from a generally wanting to see the divine, but not to understand it. Monarchy has the same fascination. Uh, the crown was so well made because in the queen words, um, I am both human, but, but touched by the divine. I'm a mother, but mother also to a nation. And, and you know, she would have been a fabulous pope and she was a fabulous queen. Right now, for example, things are going back to a more progressive view. For example, the monarchy. I've got a lot of esteem for Charles, but 
is already, I think, too much in public and too much of shaking hands. And, you know, I think he'll be a good king, but but it's already starting to go back to to be seen too much. I think they should shroud themselves in a bit more mystery because the minute you give it away, then the spell is broken. And, you know, we'll see what's going to happen with the next papacy. But I really hope someone should advise them, watch the series and try to, you know, take a leaf out of this book. And let's bring back some some mystery. I'm, I'm I'm not saying. Yeah, exactly right. I think that's you know you could say that the young pope is a reaction to the disappointment of our times, to how disappointing the 21st century is, and that that somehow has to do with the fact that it's ugly, boring, that uh, you know all sorts of strange and and sometimes amazing ambitions have largely failed, and uh, it's a moment for regrouping, so to speak, facing our decadence and trying to. Uh, fix it and uh, obviously it's not like Sorrentino is going to be the architect of civilization or even run for office in Italy not, none, nothing like that but he would like people to be uh, more serious and has this kind of public spiritedness that you would expect in a poet a desire not to you know, waste time or the lives of his audience but to enrich it to, to make yeah. life worth living and uh, that that is a noble ambition, and uh, it's why it's worth talking about this series and about Sorrentino as an artist, since that's that's the whole of the uh, the point of his career to offer, of course, first of all, Italians, but uh, people in general in the twenty first century, uh, a way out of their disappointment, or at least the beginning of a way out of their disappointment, and a way forward to something that is more human and in in the moral sense more serious. So let's take that's... back the joy of being serious. I think Douglas Murray, in a wonderful talk with, I forgot his name, he's an academic, Muslim academic, wonderful to listen to. That conversation is great. But he talks about we lost the joy of being serious. And the example he makes is um, if you look at our, not parents, but definitely grandparents' pictures, and even and, and ever since then we lost it, but before that it was the rule, there were, the technology wasn't, that affordable and it was a rare occasion so everyone had had did their intention in taking a picture is to pass something on to to posterity and they looked serious now there's two reasons for that one you looked stupid for two minutes because it took like two minutes to take a picture so you can't smile like an idiot for two minutes but the real reason was actually that's they wanted to pass something on the greatness the, the gravitas of the moment and that's the joy of being serious. And in this world where, you know, it's a trite cliche, but, you know, we're an unhappy generation with, with happy pictures. Well, it's literally true. I mean, I hope, you know, for some reason, some solar flares will eventually wipe out every hard drive and electricity all over the world. So our grandkids won't see those detestable smiley pictures for years on end on Instagram. But for now, we have to see it. And it, everyone is happy and smart. What are you, you know, I don't understand what this joy of being constantly careless is. I think there's a naivete and an infant, infantilization. And Sorrentino gets it. This Pope has no interest in being, you know, in being lighthearted. This is serious matter. Faith is hard work. He goes on it over and over again. And, you know, being popular is not, you know, the spiel. The whole point is saving your soul. I'm, I'm talking obviously from a Christian perspective. I'm, by no means I'm suggesting everyone should believe this, but coming from a Catholic perspective should be what this is all about. And, you know, this argument is the church needs to be progressive. And, well, no, Jesus literally gave to Peter the responsibility of being, the, you know, the, the, the protector of the faith as it is. The Pope is actually shouldn't change anything. His mere, his mere job is to keep it intact, the faith intact. Then, you know, the very point of the whole institution of the papacy is to preserve it over the centuries. If you start changing it to go according to times, as a Pope said a few decades ago, the church that will uh, try to be modern will be orphaned in the next generation. So shout out to Paolo Sorrentino for, for having understood Catholicism better than, than some of our own men that should actually preserve it. 
Yeah, that's, you could say, the question also for art. Uh, art is about something, not about itself. It's about human beings and the longings of human beings. It's about the human soul. And ultimately, therefore, it raises this question, what is a fit object of art? You cannot have great art or great artists without a great concern, an object of art. And that must be something that withstands the times. That must be something that is not as perishable as our whims or as our carelessness. What would that be? This is an attempt at an answer, uh, the young Pope. And that also is a, a reason to watch it. You know, it's a very enjoyable, somewhat comic show, but it's, as you were suggesting, the opposite of yeah. the kind of comedy or the kind of smiles we are used to. There's something deeply serious there. And it's therefore not about escaping humanity, but uh, you could say returning to our humanity. Well, we will do another episode and in that episode talk about the, the way the plot turns out and uh, the, the latter five episodes and would say the, the whole drama of Pius XIII. But it's good for a first episode to show his ambitions and Sorrentino's ambitions and the ambitions of art, therefore, as an attempt to say what it is to be human and therefore help people in dealing with it. Uh, Sebastian, thank you very much for joining me. It was a pleasure talking again. Pleasure. Uh, you know, it's as surprising to us as to anyone that there's an opportunity to talk about the Catholic Church in entertainment, in uh, in, in first-rate entertainment at that. So uh, that that's good news, you know. Okay. Not everything in the world is Instagram. Some of it is Paolo Sorrentino. And it's a matter of moving things from one to the other side to some extent. Absolutely. So, let us do this again next time. It was a joy talking, and uh, I'm looking forward to our, our next episode. Indeed. Thank you so much. God bless, and I'll see you very soon. All the best. Until next time. Bye-bye.